Once again to the fourth now episode of Hotbox the Cinema, your home for high theory in more ways than one. Um, I am Nathan Smith. Uh, I'm Seth Shepard. What ways are you talking about? All, every which way but loose. Jesus. Yeah. And uh, we are your hosts for this fine moving image discussion podcast. Um, Seth, how are you doing on this Sunday evening? Pretty good. I, uh, just didn't really feel like doing much. So I sat on the couch and I watched fan with red and that was pretty good. It's good to like, just kind of have on. That's a vibe. But also I saw somebody on Twitter say it was a Christmas movie. So I was giving it a test drive, you know, it is, it is a seasonal wintry classic. I feel yeah, there's one part at the end of the movie that is very like, I mean, seasonal to winter and everything like that. But I think about it all the time. Actually, there's like this three shot dissolve that goes to like this like black screen with white snow up against it as the middle shot. And so basically like, yeah, fades over to that and then immediately fades to this other shot of them walking down the stairs to this Christmas party. Very warm lighting, kind of like golden stairway. I know the dissolve. Yep. So I forgot about that. I think it made my jaw drop in the theater when it happened. Yep. My jaw dropped on the couch. <laughs> uh, if you listeners did not notice, um, unfortunately, uh, we are having to begin this episode with just a pure wave file of my bong rip because unfortunately a true tragedy occurred this week. My bong, which does not not have a name. I never named it. I never personified. Well, you never get too attached. You know, that's what they tell you. Yeah, it's like uh, living on a farm a little bit. They're just born to be broken. Um, Like Lana Del Rey, bongs are born to die. Um, And my bong had, I guess it was like nine months, and it was on my nightstand, and somehow I was pulling my comforter off, and my comforter was a bit too far over to the side, knocked it over, and it completely shattered into a million little pieces like James Frey. Mm -hmm. Did you keep one of the pieces? I should have, and I really regret not doing that. I could have buried it in the backyard, maybe. That would have been nice. Or burned it like an American flag. Um, But now I've got this gravity bong that I made out of an Essentia bottle and a Cherry Coke bottle. It's DIY, yeah. So 
becoming an engineer. Mm -hmm. Um, That's some stoner engineering, they call it. Yeah. Just, um, I was going to try to make some kind of connection between engineering and mechanics and science and our topic today. Uh, I tried to lay one up earlier because I asked if you kept one of the pieces of the glass as a souvenir, which you might get at a theme park. (laughs) We have to work on our Segway game, maybe. Uh, But either way, it it got the job done because we've arrived at our topic now, which is theme park cinema. Yep, a little bit laid on it in terms of the the public discussion just the amount of like search terms and twitter usage and stuff for the term theme park has really gone down in the last couple weeks yeah you know it has the discourse has thankfully subsided a little bit it felt like it was never gonna end the discourse that we were referring to was of course uh some recent comments made by one mr martin scorsese in reference to Marvel movies and superhero movies. In leading up to the Irishman and a lot of press junkets and everything like that, he was saying that that was Marvel movies or these like theme park movies that have all the money and, and movie production these days. And the reason he had to make the Irishman on Netflix is because a traditional studio system wouldn't give him the money to make the movie that he envisioned in his mind. The internet really grabbed on to the specific comment he made comparing kind of contemporary blockbuster cinema to amusement parks um you know saying that they're basically just designed to generate a certain response in the audience kind of manipulate titillate give you an Mm -hmm. adrenaline rush stir you around a little bit in your seat and then you go home and that's that one part of the the article he wrote there's a quote that kind of sums it up saying the nature of modern film franchises i'm paraphrasing here but uh is that their market research audience tested vetted modified revetted remodified until they're ready for consumption so kind of trying to make this very like tailored approachable um open to all audiences type of experience like disneyland designed for the whole family to be able to engage with and consume yeah. and maybe take home a little bit of merchandise related to it um mm-hmm. But the thing about this comment, which a lot of people were really upset about it and took it in a very derogatory way, which I think was the way that it was sort of meant. I mean, I don't think he was really like using that as an insult necessarily, but just sort of saying this is what it is. This is the reality of it as product. But I guess a lot of people took it as this like old guy who made his millions and he was using it in a pejorative way. Yeah, like this is just for kids and isn't serious stuff. Mm-hmm. And while it may have been meant that way or while it may have kind of come from a more negative leaning place, I guess when we started talking about this and part of the reason it took so long is because we ended up just trying to unpack maybe what theme park cinema is. And I mean, it doesn't seem like an inherently negative thing calling a, a movie like a theme park or comparing it to a theme park. No, I was, I really started thinking about this after just seeing so many tweets and think pieces and whatnot about it. And I was like, well, you know that cinema and theme parks really developed around the same time and were sort of results of a similar phenomenon at the end of the 19th century 
sort of developments in a middle class that now had a disposable income, now had weekend and vacation time and needed time to needed to fill that time, do things recreationally. But also this was this was brought on by a lot of the kind of technological advances and technological runoff of industrialization. Yeah, exactly. Like you have all kinds of new entertainment springing up. I mean, you've got vaudeville and music halls and baseball and other sports and, you know, the beach and the boardwalk and all of these things, new ways to spend your money and your time kind of popping up. Um, but I think what's really interesting about amusement parks and motion pictures is that they are both so dependent on mechanized technology. And I think that at the time that they were developing people's machines were people's relationships with machines were much different than they are now. Um, and that these were two really important ways um, that our relationships with machines totally changed. Like, I feel like these were the first air quote kind of friendly machines that a lot of people were encountering. I remember in our first episode, I, we unpacked a good bit of just like the ways in which machines are infiltrated in like every part of modern movie making, but I guess computerized machines um, being those, but also that's not something that's never been there before. It's not something that's unnatural as mm -hmm. compared to natural because machines were always intrinsically connected to, um, I mean, not just like movies and cinema, but also like 20th century, like recreation yeah. and leisure activities, whether that's automobiles, whether that is, you know, movie projectors, whether it's cash registers for people as they started going shopping more. And that became an actual activity over the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about a section in a book that both of us really like, Shard Cinema by Evan Calder Williams. And there's a chapter in that book where he talks about how, you know, most people in the 19th century and during the Industrial Revolution, the first time they were really handling machines was probably at work and probably in the factory, probably under dangerous, unsafe conditions. So it was a really kind of foreboding, formidable thing that's just like overwhelming, loud, noisy, mechanical beast that could eat you alive or like tear your arm off or something. And he says in that book that movies were one of the first places where people were encountering machines in a totally different context. And the machine was suddenly a good thing and something that could extend your perspective that could show you the rest of the world, introduce you to other cultures, other people. And I think that you could kind of say the same of amusement parks, maybe in some ways, different uses of machines. But when you go to an amusement park, you give yourself over you know, you put yourself in a dangerous roller coaster that's going to shake you up and you're trusting that that machine is going to operate successfully and deliver you to the end safely. Yeah. But I guess whenever you say something like friendly machines, um, it's a machine where the object of the machine and the, the function of it isn't some product that you are helping along with and oftentimes yeah. get mangled in the process of producing, but you're actually the end result that the machine is going for is by operating on you and then creating a sensation. Yeah, exactly. It's like a machine designed to serve you as opposed to one that you have to control and one that you have to work together with in order to produce some kind of 
commodity. Yeah. And so when you look at that period of human machine relationships, obviously, I mean, people knew them from factories and people got hurt from them in factories. And that's part of the reason why machines had like a, a bad reputation. But also, I mean, with industrialization, you had a lot of people who were automated out of their jobs. Mm -hmm. And now we call those people Luddites. Well, actually, Luddite is now kind of alienated from that initial group of people that were laid off from this automation process. And now it's usually taught to people as just an, a synonym for someone being kind of stubborn about time changing and new developments and stuff. And someone anti-technology. Yeah, exactly. Someone who's anti-technology. And now that's that's looked at in a way that's laughable, um, or at least that's the way that it's framed most of the time. But actually, the Luddite was somebody who got laid off in this automation process. And that's a, also a, a big reason why people had such adverse relationships with machines for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of feels like coming out of industrialization, the amusement park and the cinema say in some way, like, here is your reward for like, giving into technology, you know, you were able to make a living. And now this is your reward that you get to uh, have a kind of leisurely lifestyle, you get to engage in these hobbies, and now machines get to serve you somewhat. Mm -hmm. So backing up um, historically just a little bit, I think that one of the a really key piece for me in thinking through this idea and expounding on what is theme park cinema and what's the connection between theme parks and cinema, I, a really just like important piece of film theory in general, but um, something that I think is really useful here is the article Cinema of Attractions by Tom Gunning, which was a piece of film theory published in the 1980s. And Tom Gunning was responding to the blockbusters of the moment, you know, Star Wars and the movies of Steven Spielberg. And he refers to this kind of filmmaking as the Lucas Spielberg model of, of blockbuster cinema. And so a lot of critics and theorists in that time were looking at this as a negative development or as some kind of aberration or turn away from what was historically great about movies um, you know, these were movies that prioritized spectacle, that were loud, that were really overtly designed to manipulate and affect the audience to shock and awe and, and all kinds of things and, and, you know, create suspense and just really kind of foundational, primal emotional responses is like what it what those movies were designed to appeal to. So what Tom Gunning says is, you know, this isn't necessarily turning away from the history of movies, even though the predominant mode in Hollywood for the for most of its history was to make very clear, accessible, engageable stories that could be easily understood, that were resolved nicely. He says that this is actually kind of the origin point of cinema, that when you go back to the end of the 19th century, you see all of these various illusions and moving image kind of novelty technologies that predate cinema, you know, things like the Zotrope or the camera obscura, magic lanterns, just all of these visual novelties are things that sort of paved the way for, for movies as we know them. But before the cinema existed as a physical place, these kind of moving images exp experiments took place in circuses, uh, carnivals, um, sideshows, you know, all of these sort of 
uh, unseemly places that were coincidentally the same kinds of places that amusement parks developed out of. Mm-hmm. So I think that you see like both of these phenomena um, develop towards the end of the 19th century out of the same sort of developing kind of entertainment. They come out of those, out of the circus, out of the carnival, and then at the beginning of the 20th century, um, they start turning into more, I guess, regulated, centralized mediums for entertainment. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess it's going from, you know, early shorts and clips that for the most part either featured people who were sideshow acts and kind of just Mm -hmm. showed them doing things. Or, you know, whether it was maybe stuff that was more like pornographic that would be shown around at amusement parks and things like that, where you pay, you put a coin into a slot and then you see some kind of flipping image book or something. Or when people would start just going to a building just to watch these instead of going to a collection of different kind of sensations and stuff like a traveling circus or like a theme park. Yeah, it kind of changes from you know, watching, going to the Nickelodeon and observing these short incidents that don't necessarily have a story as we think of it or a complete narrative, but just sort of generate a sensation in you as a viewer, a kind of a thrill or disgust or some kind of erotic titillation, or they are just sort of designed to say, like, look at how amazing the act of seeing is. Like, we can capture... We can record images now and you can watch them and the content is not necessarily what matters so much, but just the fact that you are watching this is this Mm. new kind of um, experience and this new kind of entertainment like, you know, a carnival ride um, uh, that that shakes you around. And it's just like this is a thing that can exist now. This is a technology that can exist now in a emotional experience that it can generate in you. So it's just like the experience for the experience's sake. So in doing research, I came upon this really awesome book called Electric Dreamland Amusement Parks, Movies, and American Modernity by Lauren Rabinovitz. And this is like a really um, amazing history of early theme parks and early cinema and their joint history. Um, and just to like a very brief crash course, I guess, in the history of amusement parks, the really big patient zero for the modern amusement park is Coney Island in Brooklyn. And I think that's like when we think of like old timey <laughs> amusement parks or something like that's what everyone thinks of. When uh, I was watching the Tim Burton Dumbo, kind of the yeah, villain yeah. character who comes in and tries to take this like, low down traveling circus that is barely you know clear in the margins of their budget and he tries to like integrate them Mm -hmm. into their his big spectacle he's introduced as the thomas edison of coney island and he just has this like electric wonderland type of amusement park yeah and there's actually like a really uh the relationship between coney island and thomas edison is interesting because you have it's funny you mentioned dumbo because um, one of Edison's early shorts is uh, electrocuting an elephant, which was filmed at Coney Island and is literally just like an experiment in technology in electricity, mm-hmm. just electrocuting an elephant and killing it. 
um, and it's just a minute long and was recorded at uh, Luna Park in Coney Island. Um, so they're like both, I think, you know, kinds of pseudoscience almost like really like, you know, the electrocuting an elephant short says that this is a scientific inquiry and that this is research. And I feel like a lot of early cinema kind of says that, you know, it presents itself as factual documentary reality, you know, the Lumiere's actualities. Well, the obvious example, I guess, being the Moybridge strips of literally just like looking at the way in which a human body runs and looks at different stages or, you know, the way that a horse gallops and if their hooves are actually all off the ground at the same time or if it's just two at a time each, you know. Yeah, it kind of presents itself as like a medical study almost. And amusement parks are, are are different, but like, you know, you have in earlier, I don't know, in, in carnivals and sideshows and stuff, you know, you have the freak show and the sort of presentation of like, look at this mm -hmm. strange exotic creature from a far off land, but mm -hmm. that's really a complete fabrication but I guess the wonder of it and the reason that people would go to it was the documentative presumption of, oh, this stuff is all, they have a flying elephant, you know, these things that were promoted in a very sensationalist kind of way. Yeah, it's like presenting, I think, sensationalism as uh, actuality and as fact. And then on the opposite end, there's presenting reality as spectacle um you know there are a lot of early short films like the filming the the 1906 uh san francisco earthquake and the fires after that or like documenting the spanish-american war um and at the same time that all of these things are being documented and shown around the United States uh, at Nickelodeons and at movie theaters. You're yeah. also having recreations of these events at amusement parks because one of the really big early attractions at Coney Island and at all these other parks across the country were recreations of disasters, like literally all kinds of things. In Electric Dreamland, she gives a really great list of a lot of the various different shows and performances that were based off of different disasters or battles or events. You have everything from like the last days of Pompeii and the destruction of Messina to recreations of civil war battles like the Battle of the Mon Monitor and Miramac or like the, the bombing of Fort Sumter. Um, you have natural disasters like, again, like live recreations of the San Francisco earthquake or the Galveston flood. And then you even have some more like speculative fictional performances, which were called pyrodramas. Like there's this one called Battle in the Clouds, which was uh, quoting here a futuristic Martian invasion that featured biplanes and balloons, as well as the usual effects of destruction. Um, so you both have like real incidents, but also I think it's almost like a kind of starting to lay the groundwork a little bit for certain types of film entertainment. Um, like you see genres starting to emerge there that then carry over into like actual motion pictures. It's funny that there's one of these pyro dramas, which itself is kind of creating drama out of light. Um, which that mm -hmm. is one way of thinking about movies and one way it's theorized is, you know, painting with light or sculpting with light, maybe, or at least that's how it's theorized early on. But 
Also, that just reminds me of like the way that like Orson Welles used or got most notorious as a radio broadcaster with his War of the, War, the, War of the Worlds alien invasion simulation that then mm-hmm. you're talking about this kind of battle in the clouds being its own kind of simulation of a disaster, as you said. But this one's about an alien invasion. Yeah, you have like, I feel like a lot of um, it seems like science fiction almost like starts as these sort of pyrodramas and as these sort of theme park performances. Like another example is um, she gives an example of this panoramic illusion show called A Trip to the Moon, which, of course, the same name as the Georges Méliès short. Uh, But this actually premiered a year before that film came out in 1901. It was originally an exhibition at the 1901 Buffalo Exposition, which was kind of sort of like the same concept of the World's Fair, you know, like almost a theme park, but basically just a sort of temporary display of various exhibits and various shows. And so this was like a simulation of a trip to the moon using panoramas, magic lantern slides, other lighting effects. Patrons would board an aircraft with propellers and wings, and then the the ship would rock around and sway in a simulation of air travel. And then it would land on the moon where a cast of, quote, moon people would come out and sing and dance. So this is like a year before a trip to the moon and is basically the same simple plot you know, a rocket ship taking off, landing to the moon, and then you encounter an alien species. But it was like a live, you know, show. I didn't even know that. Yeah, I had no idea about this either. I mean, a trip to the moon is something that people say is this landmark. Like, this is one of the first narrative shorts. It's this thing that was just so widely popular because there was nothing like it. But then it turns out maybe actually it came from an amusement park or a traveling circus in the same way that a lot of, you know, cinema's initial attractions came from. Yeah, and, and, you know, A Trip to the Moon, like, takes so liberally from, like, Jules Verne and stuff, and it's just this, like, ultimate pastiche. Um, and it's really interesting because A Trip to the Moon, like, after it came out, was such a big success, but it was – a lot of that success was because of piracy, because you would have people either, like, remaking the film and making their own version of it or – cutting off the title cards and giving it a new title and putting their name on it. And one of the points that uh, Lorna Rabinovitz makes in the book that I think is really interesting is about how amusement parks really needed cinema and really needed these kind of live performances. Because once you build a roller coaster, you're sort of stuck with it. Uh, You can't change it out seasonally. So in order to keep it, keep the park fresh and keep people coming back, the parks needed, you know, Nickelodeons, they needed moving image content, they needed the pyrodramas and the live performances. Um, and eventually those things started to fade away, like in the 1910s. Um, and the sort of amusement parks became much more about the like actual rides and roller coasters and the mechanical attractions. And I feel like part of that is maybe because cinema kind of took the need away, like, once cinema started to develop and create its own language and was able to recreate natural disasters, was able to recreate battles and have military reenactments and all of these things that like you didn't need to have live shows in the same way because you could just make it once and then distribute it around the country. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also with like, with a film or something like that, or maybe something before like a feature film was fully developed. mm -hmm. It's harder to have a bad seat 
for a movie, or at least it's easier to bring people in closer and make them feel more viscerally through yeah. like just the the closeness and and largeness of somebody's face rather than them being on a stage 50 feet away from you you know yeah i think that's a really key point because so much of what cinema does and kind of what made cinema so compelling is like the ability to bring you closer to something I mean, it, it takes kind of a snapshot in the same way that like a, a postcard does or something where you now have this record of a place and of a landscape. You're able to, to you know, air quotes, but visit it again. You're able to go back there. Um, and a lot of the sort of cinematic attractions that theme parks would have were kind of founded in that, like bringing close, you know, bringing you as a viewer and a spectator closer to something. Um, there's one of the chapters in Electric Dreamland is all about this one specific um, attraction, which was at parks across the U.S., but became massively popular internationally. I mean, playing everywhere from Ireland to Hong Kong. They were these rides called Hales Tours. And basically what it was, it was like a freestanding train car you know, didn't move down a track, but it was sort of designed to shake and roll, simulating the sensation of railroad travel. And everybody, you know, would be seated like you would be in a movie theater looking forward. And at the front of the train car is a projection of some kind of landscape, you know, basically a travelogue or like a guided tour supposed to make it look like, you know, you're moving forward into this landscape down the railroad. Mm -hmm. um, and at a certain point, <laughs> eventually, you know, these things were so massively successful, but they realized that they like didn't even need to simulate the sensation of railroad travel that people just like wanted to watch, that that was the real draw. And so a lot of these were eventually just turned into movie theaters yeah, and were no longer these like uh, what these phantom train um, rides is, is what they were called. It's interesting that that was something that was initially taken away is like, oh, we don't actually need all these extra sensations because now that is kind of like a special event way of viewing a film. I know like at, the theme park Dollywood based on Dolly Parton that's in uh, Gatlinburg, Tennessee. I've like gone there and they have like abridged versions of movies that have like motion seats and wind and scent and all these yeah. things. Or even just this last week, uh, it was like one of those fathom events, like a special release event kind of thing. Uh, but I went to the theater here to see uh, the new anime movie from Studio Trigger uh, Promare was showing in 4DX, which mm. is something that's always at this theater, but I had never used this technology before. Uh, but you basically have those same kind of like motion seats. You have things that will poke your back, blow in your ear, blow in front of you, mm -hmm. fog machines, strobe lights in the theater. Um, these things that are supposed to kind of simulate these extra um, sensations and, and apparently get you more immersed. But it's something that's not necessary for a movie because it's just one theater and an entire building that that technology only got installed in, in the last year or two. Uh, yeah, when I was a kid, uh, I remember going on a field trip to the Bob Bullock Texas History Museum where they had this like IMAX short film, maybe like half an hour long about the history of Texas. Mm -hmm. And it had like fog effects and rain effects. And there was one part where it was like, 
it was so hard living on the frontier and there was like you would hear the like sound of rattlesnakes and then buzzers would go off in the seats and everybody would like jump up and scream but actually i'd say a more direct parallel experience kind of attraction is one i've only been to disney world one time but the time i was there they had this thing called soren which is essentially this kind of panoramic screen experience where you're in a motion seat, but you're supposed to be basically the concept is that you're like paragliding across the state of California. So your feet are kind of dangling. There's projection underneath you. You're moving around. There's wind. There's like smells of oranges whenever you go over an orange grove and things like that. And that almost directly compares to the, to the railroad attraction that you were saying. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of a lot of the rides like Star Tours at uh, Disney, the Star Wars ride, where it's basically a, you know, a new Star Wars movie, but it's in this sort of simulator box that shakes you and moves up and down. I also remember there being like at the mall in my hometown, there was like a shitty food court arcade and they would have a like roller coaster simulator where you would like get in this little toy car and it would bounce you around and shake and you would watch this, um, you know, first person perspective of a roller coaster at an amusement park. Yeah. Which that seems to be a kind of recurring theme using the roller coaster as some way to experience new film technology and kind of presenting it in the context of a like travel travelogue or some kind of mm-hmm nature tour film like this is cinerama which was this film in the 1950s showcasing the new widescreen like super widescreen cinerama format and it was just this kind of like showcase film of you know sites around the world in different places and it also featured um, you know footage of a roller coaster and roller coasters in some way are this like tech demo litmus test of reality um and the way that like nature footage is almost yeah and like best buy to show off like you know this is a thing like you've never seen it before kind of thing or whenever they show like the nature documentaries of like oh we waited overnight to get this footage of this like salamander doing this crazy thing that it's impossible to see with the naked eye if you're just like passing Mm -hmm. by but if if you wait, it'll naturally do it, you know? Yeah. Places you'll never, ever see presented in really kind of blistering color, like frame rate that seems faster than your eyes can perceive. Yeah. And I think that like in that way of like taking you new technology, taking to a place that you would never be able to go yourself, there's a lot of silent cinema, um, you know, focuses on like taking you to the exotic or the foreign or the unknown or just some kind of new environment. And I feel like, you know, there's a whole sort of series of silent films that have major set pieces at amusement parks. There's a whole series of like different slapstick comic shorts set at Coney Island. You have one with Fatty Arbuckle and Buster Keaton. And, you know, it's almost like killing two birds with one stone. Like you can take your family to the movie theater and get the the gags and the laughs and enjoy a story but you also get this like simulated trip to coney island so you're getting kind of like two attractions at once almost and i feel like there's a way that like the sort of slapstick gag is similar to an amusement park attraction Mm -hmm. i guess all of them are about kind of 
simulating danger but always having the remove of safety yeah whether it's a screen or it's a seat belt or a harness absolutely like that is that hits the nail on the head like it's just a, a fundamentally you think about like coming out of kind of victorian society it's just this both slapstick comedy and um amusement park attractions offer like totally new relationship to the body where suddenly you know decorum has been very important and dignity and being upright and you know covering your body but you enter you know you get on a roller coaster and you're getting flung around your clothes are going everywhere you're sitting very close to somebody um it sort of violates all these norms uh around how you're you're supposed to govern your body around that time the same th- thing with slapstick comedy like it just you, I think like a good example is like Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, where at the beginning of that movie, he's a factory worker and they're testing out this like automated feeding device on him and it just goes haywire and starts beating him up. So it's just like founded on a kind of unexpected employment or relationship to the body, doing things to the body that are like normally not acceptable. And one really good point made in Electric Dreamland is that all of the things that we want out of roller coasters, if that were to happen on like a normal train, we would be so upset, you know, like it would be totally wrong. And, um, but when we, even though roller coasters use train and railroad technology, we want the like simulated disaster and we want that simulation of it, of it going wrong. So both amusement parks and motion pictures really get attacked in the early 20th century for like, violating how you're supposed to handle yourself and how you're supposed to present yourself. They also provide a space where even though there's a long history of racial segregation in both spaces, they do, they did provide places where classes could mingle and where immigrant groups could mingle. Um, They, they offered places where genders could mingle and, you know, people could go on dates and have secret romantic dalliances. Um, And there's even this like strange phenomenon that she talks about in the book where people who were (laughs) opposed to alcohol and, you know, moral reformists were like, Oh, well the amusement park promotes this whole idea of like, what is called treating where a woman goes to a man and says like, take me on a date to an amusement park. And then in return, she's supposed to give him sexual favors. Um, so they were like, Oh, like going that, to new, that was specifically amusement parks though. Yeah. They, they were saying like, this is a behavior that is encouraged by amusement parks. Like it encourages bad morals because if you go on a date to an amusement park, like men expect you to mm-hmm. please them sexually, um, in response and it like it as payment for them buying your popcorn or buying your ticket. And there's that same kind of moral panic around cinema too. Or cinema, you're in this like dark room where nobody's supposed to be watching you. Everybody's supposed to be watching this yeah. other thing. Um, so it's almost this this way of not being supervised for who knows how long. I guess however long the feature runs. But yeah, absolutely. And there's a similar kind of voyeuristic spectatorship in both of them where a certain amount of the amusement park experience is like looking at other people and compromising situations like 
you get off the ride and you see the pictures that have been taken of everybody that you can choose whether or not to buy. And, you know, it's like somebody with their hat flying off or like somebody making a silly face or somebody throwing up and, or, you know, you, you are like, get off the ride and then you see the people who go next and you like see their crazy experience or like see them get totally just obliterated by the, the attraction. So they both kind of have this relationship to, to voyeurism and to spectatorship. But I think that like the idea of, of simulated disaster is really key. Um, and you go to the amusement park to get that sensation of things going wrong, but you know it's okay in the end. And the same thing with cinema. And so you, I guess, after the Hayes Code went out, then you start seeing these more simulated disaster tendencies of a theme park come back in the 1970s with a resurgence, or maybe not even a resurgence, but just a kind of a formal grouping of the, the disaster film genre. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess some key ones in the disaster film genre being uh, things like Airport, Poseidon Adventure, uh, Earthquake, and Towering Inferno. And so these are all movies that are just about natural disasters happening or about other maybe man-made disasters happening, but you're just kind of watching movie stars survive these things. I guess we talked about earlier, or I mentioned that it's the same thing with roller coasters where there's this remove mm -hmm. of safety, but you're kind of putting yourself in a situation where you're still kind of like allowing yourself to be teased into these different sensations of danger or otherwise kind of emotions that would raise your heart rate. Yeah. And you see, like you said, that it becomes a really like codified genre in the 1970s, like capital D disaster movies are finally really their own genre. But I think part of the reason why maybe you see the the sort of pyrodramas and live experiences and recreations of, of disasters go away is just because cinema becomes capable enough to, to recreate that. So that starts to go away. And then you have not disaster movies as a genre but movies recreating disaster in in all kinds of ways like i mean i think you can see like you know 50 sci-fi b movies like them or the day the earth stood still as kind of precursors to a disaster movie but there are also a lot of other examples and i think that a lot of them are really interesting in how they combine like melodrama with special effects uh, one example is, uh, that came to mind when we were planning this is Frank Borzaghi's movie History is Made at Night with Charles Boyer, which is this just like very tragic uh, love triangle, classic Hollywood melodrama. But it ends with basically a, the like Hindenburg disaster. This couple are aboard a flying airship that just like goes up in flames. Um, and it's this kind of like, you know, big Titanic type um, experience and suddenly this romance just turns into this like special effects extravaganza when you were telling me about that movie it also reminded me this one I guess wouldn't count as much as a disaster movie I mean maybe it does but it reminds me of the earlier 2010s movie uh, Remember Me with Robert Pattinson in it the director of, of which actually went to my high school in Texas I didn't know that yeah what? Yeah. Has he made anything else? He made the movie Hollywood Land with Ben Affleck, where Ben Affleck plays like the guy who played the black and white TV Superman. <laughs> That's like it, I Interesting. think. Interesting. So. 
Oh, well, that movie, I guess, is just kind of this kind of love story that turns sad. And then at the very end, Robert Pattinson dies in 9-11. There's not much of a reference to the date before that time in the movie. Yeah. Just pulls out two Twin Towers. Yep. But also, I mean, we were talking about this before and disaster movies are this thing that I guess as they were coming out were kind of written off as just this very kind of hokey. I mean, maybe in the same way that like theme park cinema is used Mm -hmm. as a derisive kind of name or grouping, but it especially when they're coming out and now looking back, they're still viewed as a little bit hokey, but I guess we were talking about it before and they're just these things that kind of you're willing to give yourself over to and give emotion over to, even though you have the remove of a screen and knowing that it's not real or anything like that. But also, I mean, there's more than just like a natural disaster type movie or even a man-made disaster type movie, but every movie itself does have these kind of like emotional calamities that may or may not happen in them that you everybody obviously understands aren't real but are willing to give themselves over to and are willing to ride along with this experience yeah i mean every melodrama is kind of an emotional disaster movie because you watch and see some sad person like lose their whole family and go through this immense tragedy or whatever and you you get whatever emotional experience and satisfaction and cathartic experience you need out of it. You know, if you need a cry, you get that all while having this knowledge that like even if the emotions that you're experiencing feel so intense and real, you know that the experience is just kind of a simulation um, ultimately. I guess the reason that you do engage with a lot of this stuff, though, is the fact that you do receive real emotion out of it Mm -hmm. and you deal, you are exhilarated in one way or another, whether that is watching a movie because you need to cry or whether that's going to see an action movie or something like that. Cause you want to kind of have your body worked by something that's big and kind of bombastic in that way. Yeah. It's like, it's varying degrees of spectacle. I mean, I think the kind of, it's maybe a spectrum where like, horror and action movies are at the most extreme end of like giving you a really giving a your body a, a workout and an experience and a sensation and maybe like mellow you know a, a romance or an emotional emotionally driven melodrama doesn't seem like theme park cinema in that way but it's still a designed closed experience um one ex- just like more recent example that i thought of is the Safety Brothers movie, Good Time, which is like the whole thing. And the reason why people love that movie is just because it's this like intense adrenaline rush that's supposed to make you really uncomfortable as this guy is just like running around Queens, like trying to get his brother out of jail, trying to like fix all of the many problems that are happening in his life. And just like everything is terrible and falling apart. And it is like a very technically astounding movie and like very neon crazy looking like you know hype williams style aesthetic experience and it's a very well-made movie but in some sense like you could say that that's theme park cinema because it's just so clearly designed to like put you in this emotional space and give you this intense rush of just like non-stop affect and experience and even like the end of that movie has a big set piece that's at this like haunted house theme park so it makes it a little bit literal but every movie on some level i think is that kind of theme park experience but some like disaster movies just show it more overtly yeah and one thing you mentioned uh, in talking about good time was that 
it is it is technically impressive meaning that you're the the way that the technology is used is kind of leaving uh or at least making you maybe more susceptible to being lulled into these like emotional highs and lows and i guess that's something that relates back to theme parks in general the way that technology is used to kind of give your body Mm -hmm. those rushes uh through new sensations uh but also that's part of the reason that like the 1970s had such a mass like massive grouping of disaster films and kind of birthed the genre as like a formal thing is because of the way they use new yeah. technologies to kind of make these these disaster simulations that that were exhilarating to the audiences back then. One story that kind of relates to this is anecdotal. It's not as much of a point, or it's not as much of informational, but I think is a pretty great theoretical illustration for a lot of what we're talking about. Uh, is actually from like my dad. The summer of 1974, you had two movies being Earthquake and The Towering Inferno that came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that summer, my dad, uh, in the town of Harriman, Tennessee, in the eastern part of the state, that summer they were showing the movie Earthquake, and it used this new technology called Sensoround that was developed for Earthquake, uh, but was later used in Roller Coaster as well as a few other movies. Uh, basically, that sound technology was one that used like uh, more extensive lower frequency spectrums. So it's not as much sound that you're able to hear, but mm-hmm. it's more sound waves that you can kind of feel that enhance a lot of the sensations uh, that you're supposed to be getting off of things like an earthquake. But my dad was watching this movie uh, the opening weekend and this new sound technology actually like started to crack the walls. The plaster on the Mm -hmm. wall started to like flake off and like there were cracks coming down the wall because the, the cinema building wasn't able to handle this, (laughs) this sound technology used to simulate an earthquake in the way that you might use you know, robotics and mechanisms in an amusement park simulation of an earthquake and a disaster like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so they stopped showing it after the opening night, which I think is interesting. Maybe if you wanted to look at it as something where you're grabbing these different kind of aesthetic points of what the experience of an earthquake would be like. And out of simulating this, you do also create some of these same symptoms of a real earthquake rather than a visual and an auditory one mm-hmm. in a way that it's almost a bit of a seance where you lay these items around and then are trying to summon, summon this like ephemeral event or ephemeral thing. And in that simulation and seance of an earthquake, you do in a way create a form of earthquake. Damn. It's like, I don't know, some deep shit. I, I, it's just making me think about like roller coaster tycoon, like what everyone does of, at some point where you design a roller coaster that just fails and just kills people Mm -hmm. like there's always that risk i guess with a roller coaster of like the experience going wrong uh, and the fake the artificial controlled danger becoming uncontrolled and becoming real Mm -hmm. Um, and i watched uh, another movie released in since around um, roller coaster which you mentioned um, which same producer um, i believe his name is jennings lang as earthquake um, the other like big 70s disaster movies, Towering Inferno and Poseidon Adventure were produced by Irwin Allen. So you have these kind of like competing strains of the 70s disaster movie a little bit. 
Um, and this movie was like mm-hmm. so different than I was expecting. I didn't know what it was about. Was it? I just assumed it was about like a very deadly roller coaster. I did too. And I kind of it was expecting based on um, like everything I knew about the 70s disaster movies and the kind of reputation they have. And also based off of your experience watching Towering Inferno, uh, I was expecting mm-hmm. it to be like a little unbearable and just like pretty dull in stretches. Mm-hmm. But it's actually like more than a straight up disaster movie almost a kind of like i don't know it's a little bit of a hitchcockian thriller it feels post jaws sort of and being about these disasters that are happening over fourth of july weekend um where everybody like they're trying to figure out who is setting up these roller coasters to fail but they don't want to shut the park down so you have all of these people rushing the opening of an amusement park while they're trying to like catch the the killer but it's also kind of like dirty harry a little bit in that it literally Mm -hmm. stars like the chief of police from or one of the detectives from dirty harry um and music also by lalo schifrin who did the score to dirty harry but it's like kind of uh, it has a young timothy bottoms as almost like a zodiac killer who in the opening of the movie you see him like climb a roller coaster and put something on the track to like make the make it derail um so you know the whole time like who who is doing this and who is like setting up the roller coasters to derail and you're just like watching the police try to figure out who did it um it's also weird because it, i did not know that it has a performance in it by the art pop band sparks which are just like they're like you know a like a weird experimental group and i guess like they were pretty rock and roll in the 70s but i was just like not expecting them to show up in this movie where they're like playing the opening of a roller coaster called the american revolution and it also has uh in a very brief role craig wasson the lead of brian de palma's body double as a character credited as hippie guy in the credits who's just like talking about weed and like wears a fringe jacket and he's just like a roller coaster nut who takes a stuffed animal on every roller coaster and is trying to take it on every roller coaster in america um so it's just like a wacky movie that reminds me and is maybe actually related to the 2019 release escape room Uh uh-huh there's like one of the characters in this escape room who's trying to get out is some kid who's an escape room nut. And he's like, I've been on this one, this one, this one. And he's naming off all these different ones. And he's like, I'm going to go to every single escape room and I'm going to solve all of them. Mm-hmm. And then he ends up being the first one killed in like the first 20 minutes. That's not really a spoiler. But yeah, they kill gamers in that movie. It's kind of like when the hacker nut dies in uh, Unfriended Dark Web, you know fuck experts yeah escape rooms just the the contemporary amusement parks a little bit yeah it's moving the amusement park and the kind of that created situation that has a very solvable and safe solution into your suburban strip malls yeah uh but actually so you mentioned that i watched towering inferno and that one's like a lot it's it reminded me a little bit of like cannonball run just like the mm-hmm. that kind of 70s and 80s just like all-star cast very like kind of sitcom-y at times yeah and you got a lot of old faces getting that getting that check it's actually interesting that that came out the same summer as earthquake because in the way that i mean this is a totally anecdotal not a universal fact about the movie but this story that my dad told about how the movie does break the cinema building because of the new Mm -hmm. technologies 
um, and and kind of the new way they tried to make and present that movie. Towering Inferno does maybe break a bit more of the Hollywood institution a little bit because it's a movie that is co-produced by both 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers. They needed two production companies to even make this movie. It was so expensive. Also, it's based on two different books. It has two different script is based on this work cards at the beginning of the movie, one for The Tower by Richard Martin Stern and one for The Glass Inferno by Thomas in Scorsia. And also, I mean, the title is an amalgamation of those two as well. And it's this movie <laughs> where you have kind of not dueling protagonists, but kind of adverse protagonists that are both trying to stop this fire. Mm -hmm. One of them is Paul Newman, who's the architect of The Tower. And then the other one is uh, Steve McQueen, who's the chief of the firefighters. And apparently Steve McQueen wouldn't be in this movie unless he had the exact same amount of spoken lines that Paul Newman did. So it's just a movie that is very large and kind of hard to contain, much like the fire itself, but is one that had to be produced in a very unusual way. Also, there's a slide at the beginning of the movie saying, thank you to the firefighters. It just salutes the firefighters of America at the beginning of the movie. Well, it's interesting because in Electric Dreamland, it talks, she talks a little bit about like how firefighters were, of course, characters in all of the pyrodramas and all of the like disaster spectacles. Mm -hmm. And that in early cinema, there is like such an kind of anti cop sentiment. Uh, like, you mm -hmm. know, it, very mischievous. Yeah. It's an easy like thing to communicate shorthand, you know? Yeah. Where like, you know, Chaplin and Keaton are these just like poor dudes getting kicked around by the big cop with the bully you know just bullying them and with the nightstick but that so many early films like loved firefighters and firefighters were just these unequivocal heroes yeah in the tim burton dumbo one of dumbo's first like outings and performances is this big fire and dumbo mm -hmm. has to fly up or i guess go up this ladder blow out the fire then the ladder breaks and dumbo has to fly around the auditorium <laughs> with the the rescued victim well, both, uh, you know, early motion picture houses and theaters and amusement parks were tremendous fire hazards and were like so unregulated for a very long time. And you just had like all mm. of this flammable shit in a very crowded space. And there were constantly amusement park fires in the early 20th century. You also have like a Supreme Court precedent being said about like causing like danger and panic in public for no reason being screaming fire in a crowded movie theater yeah the towering inferno is interesting because i feel like the way you describe it is like it's a production that's too big to fail mm -hmm. and seems reflective of like the both how amusement parks and movies and and at least on an industrial scale just like keep getting larger and larger so amusement parks go from just the sort of sideshow attractions to centralized parks where there's a number of different rides and different tents and different exhibitions and then eventually like when Disneyland opens in the 50s, you have this kind of new ultra spick and span sanitized, fully electrified theme park. And no longer do you have the sort of like subversiveness and the, the supposed moral decay of the early amusement park. You know, you, there's no alcohol anymore. It's for families. It's not like for dates, really. And it's it has all your favorite characters, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's starting to like, 
be associated with existing intellectual property and be adapted from that. So there's already, when you walk in, a kind of degree of familiarity. It's not so much anymore about the like taking you to another world or taking you to a different country that you can't see. It's about like a familiar experience. And so I feel like the disaster movies of the 70s are, you know, these proto blockbuster spectacles with these huge ensemble casts of, of recognizable faces, mm-hmm. a simulated disaster, and everything is all right in the end, and the, the day is saved and the problem is solved. And then you get into the 80s and you have what Gunning calls the Lucas Spielberg model um, and what we really know and identify as blockbusters. Mm-hmm. One thing I'll say is that I didn't explain a lot of the the cast of characters in Towering Inferno, you're just saying a lot of familiar faces. I already mentioned Paul Newman and Steve McQueen, but also like O.J. Simpson and Fred Astaire. Oh my God. And Faye Dunaway are all in this movie. Yeah. Henry Fonda's in Roller Coaster for like two minutes, and it's a similar thing, um, but is a little less. It feels like it's actually, it's like now a lot of the faces that are familiar in Roller Coaster now wouldn't have been so familiar because you have like a young Helen Hunt as like the police detective's kid or whatever. Mm. But, you know, like Avengers now or whatever example you want to give, just kind of stuffed with like every possible person you could recognize. Yeah. Playmobil movie. The big hit. Yeah. The the talk of the town, Playmobil. I think that the... Um, it gets us up to an interesting point talking about blockbusters just because in the eighties you start having like blockbuster, literal blockbuster rides, like adaptations of big movies as theme park rides. Uh, I know a lot of the rides that then get adapted into movies or at least a lot of the blockbusters from the eighties that then get adapted to rides maybe closer to the Mm nineties are things like E.T. Um, Jaws. Yeah, Jaws is one of them. Uh, Star Tours, I guess, that probably came yeah. in the 90s, correct? Yeah. Or maybe um, the 80s. I think it was the like maybe the end of the 80s or the early 90s. Yeah, but also like Six Flags Over Georgia has an entire like Batman area that's essentially based on the first two like Tim Burton and Michael Keaton Batman movies and that like presentation and style yeah. of Batman or at least the, the Batman ride and then some of the other ones are gathered from later batman films wasn't there a guy who that was decapitated there right yeah so this guy was waiting in the line to go to this <sighs> ride and you see like the ride going over the waiting area and everything yeah this was like 10 years ago probably but yeah apparently the story was that this guy and his friends were like his friends grabbed his hat he had a hat and they were grabbing it throwing it around mm-hmm. and they threw it kind of over some fences and he just starts hopping over all these fences that all say do not hop over this fence And then he ends up like going and getting his hat in the area where the ride swoops down. It's one where your legs are dangling and Mm -hmm. you have like kind of a claw machine claw between your legs to secure you from the bottom. Uh, And somebody's foot came down and like hit him directly on the face. So yeah, it was a whole thing. So then like I was maybe in middle school or high school when that happened. And then immediately they put up like all new brand new, like unfaded signs saying, do not hop over this fence. And put mm. them way more frequently along the fence. Mm. You've also got like T2 3D, um, you know, a literal like theme park exclusive Terminator 2 sequel. Um, yeah. And there was also what there's an Inferno ride 
there's an earthquake ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also there, this was in the 90s, I guess, when Twister came out, but also that I guess that's kind of in the 90s, there was another resurgence of the disaster movie aided by some computer animation. Uh, and Twister was one that also got a whole ride out of it at Universal Studios. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's the same thing as the seventies, where you ha- in the seventies you have the development of new surround sound technology, and in the nineties with the kind of rise of CGI, it's the same thing. Where like these huge spectacles and natural disasters are uh, are like what we want to prove and showcase this new technology with. So I mean, you've got volcano and Dante's Peak, and then like. Armageddon and Deep Impact and um, just like the scale getting bigger and bigger. You saw it a little bit about 20 years later, but it was just what 2012 was the one movie because people thought the world was going to end. Yeah, the the Roland Emmerich touch, you know, day after tomorrow. And yeah, and I mean, the disaster movie is like, I don't know, it feels like it's just been absorbed into like other genres. A lot of it kind of got absorbed into the the military action. And then you also have like action disaster, like CG composite epics. But I also think that a lot of the disaster stuff kind of got absorbed into like military movies like Black Hawk Down. Yeah. With its very like intense realism and simulation uh, and a lot of those things after the war on terror started. Right. I mean, the real life disaster movie, 9-11. And then you've got all the responses to that. Well, actually, 9-11, like created a couple disaster movies like world trade center yeah yeah ladder ladder 249 or whatever the ladder number was in that movie yeah united 93 um mm-hmm. which like the same thing the Irwin allen disaster movies are known for the like shaking kind of rotating camera that is supposed to make you feel like the, the earth is shaking and i feel like it's kind of the same thing as like united 93 using the Paul Greengrass like shaky chaotic rumble cam to like yeah. express the the terror of a hijacked plane going down. Yeah. And I guess if if we want to talk about maybe real world kind of shocking news and violence becoming a disaster film, one point that you brought up uh, that lines up more closely to the original disaster film period is is Robert Altman's Nashville being this movie that ends in a political assassination. Yeah. And the whole movie is kind of just like watching and culminating into that. Yeah. And it's like even similar to, you know, the towering Inferno where you've got this huge ensemble cast that's just kind of like crisscrossing and all of these people are colliding and are, even though you don't really know that like a disaster is looming in Nashville and you do because of the title of towering Inferno and earthquake, um, it's still like all of these people are brought together by, this incident and this disaster. So there's mm-hmm. something like, I don't know, there's something very weird and like unintentionally, <laughs> I feel like positive about the disaster movies where they say that like, we need these horrible things to happen to bring us together. And it's like, even the same, the movies do the same thing where they like recreate and imagine terrible events, but they bring us together as an audience to watch those things happen. Yeah. And there's also, I guess, maybe a more modern place where these pop up are places like Dwayne The Rock Johnson's filmography. You have San Andreas, which is a movie that was basically mm-hmm. included with every like Ultra HD Blu-ray player <laughs> just because it is kind of just this like demo reel uh, showing you the San Andreas fault line, you know. But then mm-hmm. also he had Skyscraper, which is something that I feel like is pretty 
maybe not remaking but echoing a lot of the towering inferno but it's this new tower called the pearl that's in china and you have the rock going and conquering this whole thing but it's caused by like a pmc uh rather than i can't remember who causes it in towering inferno but it's also a co a big co-production like towering mm -hmm. inferno and i guess yeah actually that does kind of maybe that's another way of reframing this and looking for rhythms over time is is maybe the way that the film industry is now changing between across like national lines with China. Mm -hmm. And it's another movie that is shot in China. It features plenty of Chinese actors to then get included in Chinese or in the, uh, the group of films selected from international markets to bring into China. Yeah. And it's the same kind of like disaster bringing people together, but now across national borders. But also I remember the lead up to that movie. I can't remember which podcast it was, but there was a podcast that, said, okay, everybody, we're all going to go watch Skyscraper. And if you have a smartwatch or like a Fitbit or something, make sure you measure your heart rate over the movie. And then let's see who gets the highest heart rate watching Skyscraper. And, and The Rock retweeted mm -hmm. this. I remember him sharing this and being pretty active in promoting that. Well, now he's got um, Jungle Cruise on the way from film Twitter favorite, favorite uh, Haume Colette Seurat, um coming out next year which mm -hmm. is just the latest in an unintentional Disney franchise of adaptations of their own rides. Pirates of the Caribbean, the biggest one. Mm -hmm. You watched two the of Haunted these Mansion. movies. Yeah, Haunted Mansion. And then Tomorrowland. Yeah, well, Tomorrowland I feel like is maybe uh, a little bit different because the the movie at the outset is talking about the launch of Tomorrowland and kind of the promise of this great utopic community where you mm -hmm. go and live and where, you know, science and innovation rules. I mean, almost a bit randy and where it is just, you know, a place that is only guided by innovation. And that is like the, the shaping way of life here. And that's all anybody yeah. here cares about. But then, I mean, the movie goes on to where Tomorrowland is no longer a thing. Um, or at least it's no longer this thing that Disney promotes, but mm -hmm. somehow this girl who's so depressed about um, the way the world is these days, there's plenty of, you know, montages of the news showing, oh, unrest in these countries or natural disasters here, global warming. Um, and then other parts of her life kind of reflect this total like distaste for mm -hmm. modern times because like her father, Tim McGraw is a NASA scientist. Uh, <laughs> And the NASA base that he works at is getting shut down because, you know, funding for space exploration is not as, you know, not as aggressive these days. So she goes and does like small contained acts of domestic terrorism on this NASA base so that just mm -hmm. to to make it where they have something to do besides just like shutting things down. Uh, but then the movie ends up going on. I don't want to, you know, spoilers for yeah, Tomorrowland, yeah. I guess. Uh, but eventually, so the movie, she finds this like Tomorrowland kind of like enamel pin. And whenever she touches this, she like glimpses this like parallel realm or something, this very colorful, mm -hmm. bright universe. And so she'll start walking around in it uh, and then run into something that she can't see. And then when she stops touching the pin, it's because she hit a wall in her real world. And it mirrors a lot of experiences that I've had in like virtual reality where a lot of times you maybe get less grounded in the room that you're you've always been in, but you just can't see no matter how, how much you try to remind yourself of the small space or you may draw a boundary around yourself 
to tell the system to remind you whenever you're going a little bit outside of bounds. Sometimes it is still very convincing just by sight that you're not around a wall or something like that. But then eventually the movie goes on to have George Clooney, who's kind of paired up with her, uh, who was originally in the Tomorrowland like little kid program as a child inventor. Uh, it's about them like using some spaceship built by Nikola Tesla in the Eiffel Tower to get back to Tomorrowland, this like parallel universe that she saw through that enamel pin. And they go there and it kind of reminds me of a lot of the boundaries of like innovative tech companies, but also a lot of the boundaries mm -hmm. of theme parks just as existing a lot of times totally outside of the real world. Um, they get to Tomorrowland and it's this place where they just say, oh, well, everybody on Earth, you know, we tried to help and innovate away from these big problems, but everybody on Earth is so self-destructive. So we just like closed ourselves off in our little innovation community and convinced the world we don't exist because we're not going to be able to help them. This is Hugh Laurie delivering all these. He's like the head of Tomorrowland. And they eventually go into this big kind of virtual reality room where you can see anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. You can see into the future. I think about three days is what this this chamber ends up being used for. Uh, but there's this moment where they go to like a flood zone that's been flooded in a recent natural disaster. And they're just like standing in this flood zone, all dry in this very clean room and just kind of talking about it. And they're like talking about, wow, this is really like experiencing a flood. And the reason I'm going into such detail about the plot about, <laughs> especially this very minute point is that this movie came out in 2015 and in 2016, Facebook had their conference where they started showing off a lot of their things that they had developed since they mm -hmm. bought Oculus, the VR company. And one of the things they did was show off a social platform for VR, where if you had their tiny little headset or you had the big HTC Vive on the PC or something, you were able to get in VR with your friends and talk with them and go places in the world and kind of experience things virtually together. And they go to a rip from the headlines, like happening mm -hmm. at that time, flood zone. And they're just standing around basically using VR for empathy back when that was a lot more of an occurring thing with a lot of tech companies. But this movie that came out a year before that even happened totally predicted this just absolute apathy from Silicon Valley and these like innovative companies um, that are most of the time led by kind of randy and ideas of innovation and genius and prosperity and how a lot of times these companies used for technology don't actually do anything. So I went into such detail about that movie because it was very surprising and how lucid it was about mm. climate change, VR, and companies kind of guided by innovation alone or that tout that as a guiding principle. Well, it's interesting because Tomorrowland was directed by Brad Bird from mm -hmm. Pixar and co-written by Damon Lindelof. Yeah, and he was Brad Bird was working on a very for a very long time on this film project which is adapted from a book and I think now it's getting like kind of reworked into a TV mini series because it's a really expansive ensemble driven story. Uh, but it's called 1906 and it's about the San Francisco earthquake and the fires. Um, so it's just like, I don't know, a very interesting connection that this director who makes a movie based off of this part of Disneyland was also trying to make something about this early disaster um, that was recreated in amusement parks and in cinema. Um, but the VR is really interesting because it just goes back to, I think, 
amusement park attractions being like an original form of, of VR, you know, like the Phantom Train film being a kind of virtual reality. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and also a lot of early film strips, not exactly what people usually classify as a canonized cinema, but a lot of just like watching a train car go. And yeah. people apparently screaming when they watch that for the first time or just watching people leave a factory, you know, just seeing things that are real and being so just never having seen a moving image before, maybe, and being so convinced yeah. that that motion and that human body movement had to be tied to something that was at the moment vital rather than something that was just captured. Yeah. I And I also think that Tomorrowland like seems to articulate this just the thing that really differentiated Disneyland from every theme park and every amusement park that had come before it, which was it being not just like a standalone vacation spot or place to go with your family or place to hang out, but being this whole kind of philosophy and state of mind and experience that extends outside the park. I didn't, did not know this before uh, reading electric dreamland, but Walt Disney funded the park with the ABC show Disneyland, and he agreed to make this, you know, weekly one hour show, like going through the park, showing off the rides. Um, And that was how he funded the park. But it was also how he sold the park to people and got people to come and let people know about it. So already from the beginning, the, the Disneyland wasn't just the park itself. And then just going along with the kind of like, progression of and development of blockbuster merchandising and licensing i mean so much of the reason why people go to disneyland again and again is to get those like special items to get the special mickey mouse ears the commemorative cups the pins all that shit um Mm -hmm. is because you can only get it at disneyland so i think that like merchandise experience is something new newer or like more recent you know that that disney really brought into the theme park experience and i in kind of researching this we were talking about a lot of theme parks but one thing that i thought was kind of absent from the just kind of the blanket metaphor for theme park cinema when martin scorsese says it about you know a marvel movie or that kind of hollywood industry but one thing that i felt was missing was talking about gift shops and and maybe what those are there for looking into it the history of gift shops they weren't massive until like the late 1800s to early 1900s i mean one of the first gift shops in like a historical museum uh, apparently came about around 1859 with mount vernon george washington's house before this when they started selling actual gifts um, that were made uh, using you know trees from the property or something like that and also, I mean, before these gift shops were kind of widespread, apparently when people went to maybe more famous and mythic locations, mm-hmm. whether historically important, culturally important, however they may have been marked for somebody to want to go, people would like go to Plymouth Rock and there would be a hammer and chisel left there for people to chip off their own part of Plymouth Rock to say that they'd been there or to carry that with them. Um, apparently people would go to the White House whenever people were allowed to just walk into there and they would cut off parts of the curtains or the carpets, or whenever they met a famous politician or something, politicians would be fine with people cutting off locks of their own hair sometimes Mm -hmm. for people to take. Um, And apparently when people would go to Mount Vernon, the reason they ended up making a gift shop uh, was because people would chop down tree limbs or would chip off part of like the porch for Mount Vernon. And so they would actually be like kind of decaying the property that they were going to visit. 
the when the Mount Vernon Ladies Association owned it and they got ownership, they started a gift shop and also started using that money as a way um, to actually start leading historical preservation, mm-hmm. uh, which was it wasn't being preserved at all. People actively taking away from the site that apparently was so important. But I mean, even looking at it, maybe through uh, with art museums, uh, I think the Met, the Metropolitan Art Gallery in New York City. I mean, they would have like cheap reproductions like at their desk, but apparently around 1871, they started contracting people or they started contracting a painter to recreate old master paintings they had on display. And he had about 10 of these and they would display them directly next to the original and they would have a price tag on them and they would have them for sale, but they would display them directly next Mm -hmm. to the original as a way of kind of introducing the concept of a, maybe a boutique replication and saying, look, this thing looks pretty close to the original and you can buy it and take it home with you. But apparently gift shops in general weren't as widespread until around the fifties. I mentioned earlier that, I mean, it kind of spreads with the act of shopping becoming a more mainstream thing in America, at least Mm -hmm. um, after world war two and what people will look back on and refer to as the golden age of capitalism uh, as a thing we're shopping and, you know, people are more heavily marketed to, Um, And they start going and getting objects. So it started to steadily grow. And around the time that we talk about these blockbusters and disaster films coming about, that's cited as something that kind of made or had a blockbuster in itself for museum exhibitions in the King Tut exhibit from about Mm -hmm. the mid to late 60s or the mid to late 70s. Uh, This King Tut exhibition was something that apparently was a real landmark for people needing or at least really desiring and being willing to pay for uh, special gift shop experiences and special, basically all these gift shops being places that sell souvenirs that communicate that you were there, Mm. but also souvenirs that, as I talked about earlier with movies, but also theme parks being these things that gather together these kind of aesthetic or maybe somatic pieces of an experience to bring about this experience or a memory or something within you, or maybe just a sensation. Um, a souvenir is maybe one of these kind of parts of the things that bring about this experience but is something that carries that memory Mm -hmm. with it and is an object that refers back to that place or that time that you had or the people you were there with i feel like there's a sort of development you see historically where maybe the like 18th and 19th centuries are kind of where individuals become i don't know like subjects in some kind of way and as like the novel becomes a medium, the the idea of like the self, you know, of like being the protagonist of your life, of kind of being mm-hmm. a character develops. And I feel like the end of the 19th century until the mid 20th century is like the development of the self. It becomes not just the, the kind of self and subject, but people become rendered as spectators. Um, mm-hmm. And... I mean, I feel like that tracks along with this history of the development of the gift shop and the souvenir shop, not just as a way of somebody remembering something or marking their experience, but also like part of the reason there wasn't like a Mount Vernon gift shop. This article I read about it uh, said there wasn't one for the longest time just because historical preservation was still like a practice that was being pretty heavily developed in America. Mm -hmm. And part of that's because I guess it's at that point was just over 100 years old. But also figuring out the concept of monetizing souvenirs to then go into 
a pipeline for preserving whatever mm -hmm. site that you're working on or curating art if you're in an art gallery. Yeah, I feel like, and I feel like what you were saying about the post-war era becoming this like the real sort of rise of intense automated mass-produced consumer culture, like it's then that the kind of spectatorial self becomes the consumer self. And so viewing and like buying and purchasing become the like the difference between these things erode it's like the the theme park was previously this sort of multimedia space with different effective experiences you know you go to one tent and there's a vaudeville performer and you laugh and then you go on the ride and you're scared to death and and it creates these different experiences and now added into the mix um with the sort of integration of the gift shop into the experience um it, it it extends it further and i don't know where i've just totally kind of lost where i was going with that no you're good so i guess in terms of viewing souvenirs as kind of these mementos and ways of taking something with you maybe a good object lesson is uh this thing that came out i think like five years ago um, but, or maybe not came out five years ago, but, but became commercially available outside of the museum five years ago. Nintendo has a relationship with the Louvre Museum in France, mm -hmm. and they made a special software for 3DSs and then gave 3DSs to the Louvre to use as like tour companions. So this interactive device that gives you more information about the art, if that's what you choose. Uh, here in Nashville, the Frist, I believe just has audio players and you you find the number of the thing you're at that you want to learn about and you scroll to that number and click it and it'll tell you about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but with this Louvre 3DS program, it has 3D models of the, the art that you can manipulate. You can zoom in on paintings if it's more two-dimensional or at least, I guess, less spatial as a sculpture would be. Um, and it gives you information. You can listen to it and everything. You can also see a map of the museum. And I believe in 2014 or 15... Uh, they made that commercially available on the digital platform, the eShop on the 3DS. Mm -hmm. uh, originally, it was a piece, it was a cartridge software that you could buy in the gift shop. Multiple languages, and it was the only cartridge that was not locked by region um, in the way that I wouldn't be able to play a South American 3DS cartridge just because it's from a different region than my 3DS is registered for. So it's the only thing that's able to kind of go anywhere in the world and be played. Uh, but also as a way of literally taking the Louvre with you rather than just the memories like a regular souvenir would be, but you're actually taking like mm -hmm. indexical information, high quality photographs of the Mona Lisa or, you know, scans of these statues, but also you're taking uh, extra textual information about uh, when it was made, who it was made by, um, maybe influences or periods that it's associated with and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... Um what happens is like a collapse in distinction between media ex experience and merchandise where the object is supposed to represent your memories of that experience of the park and, you know, your memories of going on space mountain and being taken up into the darkness and like seeing the stars or whatever. That's what you remember when you pour your 
orange juice into your Mickey Mouse glass in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's an, another way that that distinction is kind of collapsed and where um, shopping and seeing are interrelated is in another kind of historical development that happens in the 80s and 90s where the multiplex becomes part of the mall and becomes part of the shopping experience where mm-hmm. you're you go you hang out you you browse a window shop maybe yeah. buy something and then you go see a movie it's the mall rat lifestyle you know exactly i guess it's it's closing now but east town mall a classic institution in knoxville tennessee it's where i bought my nintendo wii (laughs) uh which is the there are two big malls in knoxville for those of you who don't live there east town mall and west town mall yeah and west town mall is like the really like you know william sonoma apple store like gleaming you know the 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 suburban rich people mall and east town mall has been like dying for years and years and is finally closing and most of the storefronts are empty yeah we were both uh in knoxville a year or two ago together and i was like we gotta go in the time that we're here i think there was a thing where i just like needed shoes so i was like let's go to the shoe store at this mall but also we need to go to this mall because a third of it has a big wall just blocking it off but there's a door you can walk through to get to the other side yeah and you can just walk around this empty third of the mall we're just like the stores are all closed except for like a gym at the end and it's just like all these sculptures and walkways and colors and everything but there's no actual store the husk of a Hollister, you know, like you can look into an empty storefront and see that it was an Abercrombie or like maybe there's some mannequins still. <laughs> and there were a few stores like a game store. Yeah. Well, there's it's still like an active mall. Like there's a yeah, there's a game store. There was a theater in there. Apparently there's going to be a brewery in there at one point And then that didn't happen. I don't know. Yeah, there was a little bit of a food court still. And then there was like the. <laughs> Like Oriental store, you know, like the Buddha that sold Buddhas and rugs and knives. Yeah, there were like five stores now that sold knives, but it's just kind of one of those malls that's kind of gone through the the death rows of probably having a mini golf place in there at one point, then having an arcade at one point, and then those all go out of business, and now it is kind of just. Yeah, there was kind of a creepy like children's play area that was dark and but it the the mall the real purpose of the mall was just to have the movie theater. Like that was it um mm-hmm. basically and that was kind of the main reason people would go there. So it was just like this carcass of a mall attached to a movie theater. Um and on a much bigger scale, although there are varying degrees of it, I guess because a lot of shopping malls will have like a little train for kids to ride on or like maybe like slightly like the next higher tier of malls like there are some that will have like a little bungee jumping yeah or they have like the the um lazy river with like a a gondola in it or something like that but then you have the like you know the biggest tier of super malls like the mall of america is where you have literal roller coasters and amusement parks inside the mall. Um, There is this mall experience that has been under construction 
um, across the river in New Jersey, and they've been building it for literally like two decades. It's called American Dream Meadowlands, and it was originally called Xanadu, which is very telling. The Pleasure Dome. Yeah, it just kept – it was supposed to be this massive thing, like, and it just kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed, and of course then the – the, the crash happened in 2008 and like that delayed it even further and like Goldman Sachs invested in it. And apparently if this mall like fails, which it probably will, um, Goldman Sachs will like own a huge chunk of the mall of mall of America's um, because it's like owned by, I guess, the same parent company. So they've like agreed to give off like a massive amount of the Mall of Americas to Goldman Sachs if American Dream Meadowlands fails. But let me just like read off a little bit of the things that are like in going to be in this mall. Um, They're going to have an indoor NHL sized ice rink, um, a DreamWorks NHL sized, I guess to have games probably, Um, or maybe like a practice or like a training game or something something. like that. Um, And they're going to have a Nickelodeon universe theme park. There you go. A DreamWorks. SpongeBob memes made real. Yeah, there's SpongeBob rides. Um, There's going to be a DreamWorks water park with Shrek's Soggy Swamp. A Kung Fu Panda Zone. Madagascar Rainforest. um, Balloons of Shrek and Donkey hanging from the ceiling. They're also going to have an indoor ski slope, which actually just opened. A Legoland Discovery Center, an aquarium, an observation wheel, a dine-in cinema, 21 full-service restaurants, um, more than 100 eateries, and a giant tree sculpture, um, and Instagram moments. Uh, of course, Instagram moment areas, posting areas, areas. Exactly. Which I guess is just the new, the next step from seeing to shopping to posting to showing your experience. Yeah. It, One thing actually uh, that I got reminded of as I was talking about this Nintendo Louvre companion app, I just remembered you're talking about malls and kind of this like disaffected feeling you get going into like an, a dying mall. Mm-hmm. or a mall that maybe just like the economic model of a mall doesn't really work as much with the way that society, at least in America, usually operates and animates. But I was reminded of another video game that replicates one of these kind of souvenir experiences is the Disneyland Adventures game for the Kinect on Xbox 360. Oh, yeah. Which also they like remade and have they sell it in like an Xbox One case now and it works with the Xbox One Kinect. But it's this game where you're, you know, standing in front of their motion camera you go on rides. A lot of the rides are just like walking side to side to like avoid stuff. Mm-hmm. But the whole the whole like interaction you have with this thing is to walk. You just like point your arm forward and your character just walks around the park and you go and you go to the different characters who are all in these like mascot suits and you can't touch them. But it's like you walk up to them and you can get a picture. You can pose with a picture or pose for a picture with them. You can get their autograph and everything. You can like hold out your hand for a fist bump and it takes a second to get for the game to register that you're Mm -hmm. getting a fist bump from this character. Um, And it all feels kind of weird, especially to play like in a room by yourself where you're just kind of standing there doing all these motions and your characters interacting with these characters as well. But also it reminded me a lot of just like the experience of walking around both malls and theme parks, but these places that are just like mass congregations of people uh, who are all there to go to this very specific thing and they don't talk to each other at all. Mm -hmm. So that same kind of distance that you feel uh, is something that 
totally rings true in the recreation of a theme park experience in Disneyland Adventures. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth talking about theme parks and games um, because when you were mm-hmm. talking about that, like that disaffectedness and that like people not interacting with each other and just sort of moving forward, I was just thinking about like all the NPCs in Roller Coaster Tycoon and how you just have like people vomiting around each other and they just are like moving around like just uh, totally uh, unaware of each other. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, that's the roller coaster tycoon games are so strange because I was very into them when I was younger. And in college, I like decided to torrent the original one just for kicks one day when I was like procrastinating. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is such a strange game for children because it's involves such intense micromanagement. Like there are so many numbers and statistics and analytics and yeah. all of these. And it's like flow design and you yeah. have to like design spaces and stuff. And you have to like deal with sanitation and all of these these things and make sure people are fed and manage their emotions and there are so many infinite ways to manipulate and redesign rides and it's just like endless and it's kind of overwhelming on this like related to movies front though you also have uh lucas arts thrillville of course the r.i.p the lucas gaming division yeah EA is about to bust down your door right now and say, quit talking about <laughs> starts games. But yeah, that was a good one. But also something related to, I guess, if we're looking at, you know, real time strategy games, but less like combat oriented, like something like Starcraft and you're kind of designing a park or something like that. Mm-hmm. But also related to movies. I mean, a pretty obvious one is the game, the movies where you're literally yeah. rather than making a theme park, you're making a movie studio and you have to kind of like the sims you have these social relationships you have to manage with actors directors all kinds of talent and creative Mm -hmm. employees uh and then also i mean you do get to actually to make movies using this thing it is like very kind of basic like uh, a couple templates of shots and like how close you are to the actors backgrounds motions they can do so it is kind of like amalgamating Mm -hmm. all these different parts of real life um into the situations that work best for the story that you're telling but that is something that I always I played. My older brother was more into it than I was, uh, but I played that a good bit. And I also would like go on YouTube and watch people's <laughs> movies that they'd made using this. Yeah. Um, as you said that and like talking about that management, it reminds me of some th- of this passage in the I guess it's not really a documentary but the performance movie swimming to Cambodia where the actor Spalding Gray gives this like extended monologue about largely about his experience making the movie the killing fields um, in Cambodia but he talks at one point about filming a battle sequence for that movie and like being up in a helicopter and seeing all these like local people as extras with weapons running around and seeing all these explosions and controlled fires and vehicles and stuff. And, and just seeing that and being like, maybe if every country in the world just like made a big war movie every year and just created a simulation of a war, they wouldn't actually need to go to war. It would like scratch the itch and fulfill that role, but nobody would have to die. And it just like thinking about that reminds me of just the like pyrodramas and the reenactments of disasters and battles. And it's just like feels like the same thing. Like it's the same impetus, like reenacting these things, uh, whether at amusement parks or movies is like trying to fulfill the same spiritual need that war does. 
that's like also like a pretty direct mirroring of the theory that Sam Peckinpah had in mm-hmm. the presentation of violence in the Wild Bunch is that he thought if you make something so hyper violent and so stylized, especially in the way you edit it and have like time happening within time, bullets leaving bodies, then entering them, just all of these like totally unnatural mutilations of the body that are augmented by technology he thought that would be a cathartic kind of release this is when i guess people were having another one of those debates about violence in media and what that does to people in society and he thought it would you know create this kind of cathartic release but then it only Mm -hmm. proved very influential in the way that violence is presented on screen now i think that peckinpah is a great thing to bring in because you know his style of editing it has this like really controlled tempo to it where from shot to shot it may be in slow motion or normal speed or maybe accelerated even and going back and forth between these varying speeds um, which was tremendously influential on John Woo and Hong Kong cinema which then ended up influencing American action filmmakers of the 90s and you know Michael Bay and kind of leads to the development of that intensified continuity kind of hyper kinetic editing style that we see so much in action cinema over the past two decades and that is like the the style of what Scorsese calls theme park cinema really kind of that is what it is but Peckinpah in that effect that he talks about wanting to that kind of cathartic experience. I mean, it's basically the same thing that a roller coaster does where roller coasters will speed up and slow down, you know, move you side to side, shake you around, you know, they let up and then they, they ramp up and it just like takes you back and forth. And when you think it's calm, it starts to act up again. And I feel like, his approach to to action filmmaking is is very similar and like that is uh i don't know that's just like another kind of low-key example of theme park cinema is that approach to an action set piece as as a like deliberately approaching it as a like kind of effective emotional event i guess like maybe another way of framing that would be that both i guess theme park cinema and then maybe something that maybe outside of that or just you know regular cinema i don't know default cinema or something like that (laughs) these things that all arrive at maybe the same end goal and result of like emotion and sensation but perhaps theme park cinema is something that it apparently like cheats its way to arriving at those emotions or maybe arrives at them in a more cheap way yeah that's not something that i'm saying but maybe that is something that influenced the view that, you know, some movies are theme parks rather than, you know, cinema. It's something that arrives at these same outputs, but through through a way that is more based on sensation and and less less thought provoking in a way. I think what it is is it gets back to the beginning of our discussion with like the relationship between human subjects audience viewer spectator whatever term you want to use to the machine and the mechanical apparatus is that what we describe as theme park cinema what seems most manipulative whether it's superhero movies or melodramas or the 70s Irwin allen disaster movies or whatever example you want to look at they (laughs) reveal themselves to be machines i think more than whatever 
we consider the opposite, you know, art cinema or slow cinema, experimental, whatever. Those things may make us aware of their style. But they're they're ashamed of the mechanical process, though. Yeah, because the emphasis is like on the author, on the human creator, the individual who produced this or the individual's. It's not something that like betrays the machine origins and its existence as a piece of technology and as something that is ultimately like inhuman. But theme park cinema, whatever example we choose, does show that because we're when we're on a roller coaster, we may have an intense emotional experience, but we see the bones and we see the steel very easily. Mm hmm. I think that's probably the best end note we Damn. can get in this conversation. I think so. Tying the whole thing back in. Yeah. But also I feel like that like rings true with basically everything that we've set up to this point. Yeah, the carousel, just the Ferris wheel, bringing it back, starting mm -hmm. it over. The wheel in the sky keeps on turning. <laughs> Goodness. We did over the course of the time since the last the last episode that we recorded, we set up the Hotbox Hotline. Yes. There's a bit of a housekeeping thing at the end of the pod podcast. Love some housekeeping, even though it's an audio file, you know. They love to keep house. But we talked about having a voicemail line set up. And so we made one. It's a Google Voice account. So you're going to call this thing and it's going to say like your person can't receive calls or something. I don't know. Some robot's going to talk to you unless yeah. we record a new message on there. But... Uh, I don't know. I mean, what do we really want people to send in and, and call in about? I was thinking, you know, I don't know, questions. If you have any specific comments about things we've talked about or things we've said, if there's anything that you disagree with or really agree with yeah, um, that you want to point out. If you want to add, if you want to just uh, critique the podcast, if you want to give us a, a review, maybe not an iTunes review, but just yeah. a to our face review. If you want to engage in some dialectics. Um, yeah. you could read off a tweet draft perhaps yeah we'll help you workshop your tweets maybe too we could do that if you want us to roast somebody in your life maybe if you have any requests if you want to know anything about yeah. us uh if you need like if you know strain recommendations stoner tips what have you mm -hmm. yeah i got stoned and built a couch the other day so that's good that's we're both some engineers in here <laughs> Um, or if there's like something that you want that we've said that you want to hear more about or something that you would like us to talk about or just something you yeah. want our opinion on. That's what I think maybe. Um, but also, I feel like yeah. if you don't want to hear your voice, you know, if you're worried about the feds or something, you can also we could have a robot read it on here. We could have we could have the robot read it, uh, but you could write in an email too. we have an email address now. Hotbox the cinema at gmail dot com. And hopefully, like, I think by the time this episode actually comes out, we'll have a Twitter as well. Yeah, so we tweeted out this hot this hotline number before we actually recorded, but then, like, changing over some settings. I don't know if anybody called before then, but I think it, like, erased some, like, voicemails that were in there when I was messing around with some stuff, so. Machines. What are you going to do? Machines. Humans and machines. Can't live Terminator with Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. In mm -hmm. theaters now. But if you want to call in, leave a message, maybe get that aired on the next podcast, it's 615-592-1003. That's 615. I totally forgot what it is. 592-1003. There you go. There you have it. Do you have, uh, before we get out of here, do you have anything else to plug? Anything to share? Not at the moment.
Yeah. What's no. your What's your Twitter handle? As always, at ASAP Sunscreen. Which now I guess I should. Pro- I don't have a bio now, but I should probably put a bio with a link to a Twitter page for a podcast that I co-host at this point. But mine just says host of hot well i have other things in my bio but it says host of hot box the cinema and i'm just like i'm just like why haven't i made a twitter already because that looks so clunky to not just have the at and to spell it out like that but you can follow me at trillmore girls i do i uh, want to give a quick plug to a podcast that i was on last week um a really great little show called extended clip hosted by my friends eddie malcolm and jt they've started earlier this year and i think that we did like ours was episode number 28 and unlike us they are able to put out an episode every week somehow very impressively inhuman they also as the name as the name of their podcast suggests they keep it going at a pretty quick clip and they keep it all under an hour also um, inhuman and we let it go long uh but it was pretty fun to kind of just like quickly just go through things and keep it going but they did a little series on adam sandler the sandman um, who brings us dreams uh, in advance of his new movie Uncut Gems, which is which just came out in New York and L.A. and is coming out wide on Christmas. Um, mm-hmm. We talked about Click and Rain Over Me, which are the wow. saddest movies in his catalog and also the best and the worst movie in his catalog. I listened to a little bit of the episode. It was very nice. I didn't finish it at the at the moment. But did you uh, just give me a spoiler? Do you talk about Shadow of the Colossus in this thing? Talking about Rain Over Me. We don't go super deep into Shadow of the Colossus, but we talk a little bit about Shadow of the Colossus. We talk yeah. about 9-11 more, I think. It seems like a pretty flat metaphor for 9-11 and coming over like these big giants. Like it, it doesn't seem like a big thing, but it was honestly though like less pr- a part of the movie than I had been let out to believe. But mostly, I was just shocked by the fact that a large part of the movie is about a false sexual harassment lawsuit brought against Don Cheadle because he doesn't want to let a woman suck his dick in his office. Um, and also, there's a scene where Adam Sandler tries to commit suicide by cop. So I was mostly just like in awe of those two scenes and like this Shadow of the Colossus stuff hit me a little less hard than I was expecting. It mainly hits me hard. I haven't actually watched the movie, but I expect the only thing to hit hard is just the knowledge that that movie is the reason that that game is Adam Sandler's favorite game just because he had to play it so much on the set. It's a fucking terrible movie, but it's kind of a fun time just because it's written by an alien. I'll give it a listen as, as our listeners should as well. That's it. That's pretty much it for for now, I think. Give us a ring, give us a call, uh, and give us a follow. You know? Until then, keep on token.
Tell 